you have your Bible, would you please turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 32. We are nearing the end. It may not feel like it. We're about 10 chapters away from the end, but we are nearing the end of our studies in Job. This morning we are going to make the biggest jump that we have done thus far, and I believe maybe the most amount of Scripture I've ever tried to preach from at one, in one sitting. When I was younger, my mom used to tell me, take smaller bites, don't shove it all in your mouth. Um, that's basically what we're going to try to do in a sermon form this morning. Not take smaller bites, we're going to shove it all in our mouth at one time. Uh, and then you can go home and uh, sift through it. Just as I would do in any sermon, my, my goal is uh, to make it clearer to you for you to, when you read it again, you see exactly what we talked about. don't want you to walk away and think, wow, I wonder how he got that from this. I want you to be able to have read it, and I'm hoping that you will go back and read through it. And particularly this morning, because we can't cover six chapters very thoroughly in a 30 to 40 minute sermon, I would, I would leave that to you. We will cover, we will, we will start at the beginning of 32, we will end and at the end of 37, but we will not have covered everything, and so I would encourage you to go back and read that again at, some, at a time when you can give it more time, give it a little bit more attention. Would, we, uh, would you bow with me and let's pray and ask the Lord uh, for his help as we study his word. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts to you this morning. We thank you that you've given us your word, that you have given us uh, wisdom, that you've given us uh, truth and knowledge. And these are trustworthy. These are faithful and true. And, and Lord, we can uh, rely on them. So give us understanding as we study the words. Give us faith. Uh, that we might uh, grow, that we might follow you and obey. Help us to see Christ in these words and uh, help us to draw close to you as we hear uh, your warnings, as we hear your encouragements and your exhortations. May you be glorified, not only in the way that the word is preached, but in the way that the word is obeyed and applied into our lives. And it's for Jesus' sake and in his name we ask, Amen. We begin with chapter 32. We begin a new act in the drama of the story of Job with these Elihu speeches. Um, if you think about the whole drama of Job as a play, we had the initial act where we had our narration who introduced us to Job, and then the real first part of the story begins in heaven where the Lord and Satan are having their dialogue with, with one another about Job and how uh, Satan is not convinced that, that, uh, that Job will serve the Lord without the blessings and if all of the good things were taken away, that Job would curse God to his face. And of course, God knows that he will not. And so he allows uh, Satan to, uh, to do what he will. Within the means that God, uh, within the boundaries that God has established, and even later on, God Himself says, "I have done these things to Job." That's the act, uh, main act there. And then we, the curtain drops, and when it raises up, we see Job sitting on the the ash heap of the city. We see his friends come and sit with him in silence. And then 
begin to open their mouths and try to offer uh, some sort of, of reason and some explanation as to why these horrible things have been going on in Job's life. And for much of the book, uh, we have been sitting in this scene and listening to uh, speeches that are, are full of hot air and judgment and condemnation with real, not really any help. And Job has, has valiantly fought them off and maintained his innocence throughout all of it. Well, the story ends in Job 31. Uh, Job, the, that act ends in Job 31, and the curtain rises again to reveal a new man named Elihu. If you know much about the story of Job, then you may be familiar with Elihu or Elihu. His name uh, can be translated, it is, he is my God, or it is, my, uh, it, is, it is God, or just my God. There's some disagreement about these six chapters of, of uh, Elihu's speeches. There is one view that says that Elihu's speeches are really no different than the rest of the friends. That he is a young arrogant, plucky uh, man who is sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. Then there are others who say that Job is really speaking prophetically here. That the friends have not had anything positive to say, anything helpful to say, but now Elihu is on the scene and he will give Job the only helpful uh, wisdom uh, th- that he will get from a man. Oh, well, you'll have to be the judge of that and it's, and it's amazing it, how many different resources I would look at, uh, how varied it was into uh, cheering for Elihu or uh, booing for him. But as I, as I thought through that, trying to determine exactly what, what we might do with these speeches, and it's similar to how we had to treat Eliphaz and Bildad and Zafar, uh, Job had to sit there and listen to those guys. And Job had to sit there and consider what they were saying to him. And Job had to then filter through the, le- the, the filter of truth so that he might know what he should do with the words that his friends have offered to him. And it's really no different what he would do with Elihu. He'll sit there, he'll thoughtfully consider what is being said to him, and since it's a part of the Scripture, we too will sit with Job, we'll listen to what has been said, and respond accordingly. A few things that we need to kind of clear up about Elihu are some things that I want to make sure that are in our minds before we go through these as uh, we, we will be rapidly going through them. So some things that I just I want you to make sure that you're aware of before we dig into him. Elihu is kind of this mysterious man that hasn't really been introduced and all of a sudden in the middle towards the end of the book, he's there and it, did, it does seem that he has been sitting there this whole time. Uh, it, it, it may seem that he has walked up in the middle of a conversation and is uh, carelessly giving his thought and his two cents into a situation that he knows nothing about. But as we listen to what he says, it does seem to me at least that he has been sitting there the entire time in silence. And yet, when he finally does speak, he says more than any of the other friends do. He has four speeches. The most that any of the other friends have given is three. He has much, much more to say even though he has been silent up to this point. And I think that it may have to do with the way that the narrator of the the storyteller of Job does not want us to pay attention to Elihu just yet. He wants our attention to be on Job and Job's three friends. And at the right time, he will bring Elihu into the picture, although he's been there this whole time. Something else that is important for us to realize is that Elihu uh, says a little bit in a lot of words. He's very wordy. Uh, He will uh, be poetic in some sense, 
but not as poetic or as beautifully or uh, uh, beautiful an orator as some of his friends have, even though the things that they say are not very helpful. It's important that we also recognize that these speeches that Elihu will bring are not answered by anybody. Now, you can take that one, one of two different ways. Job will not respond to Elihu's speeches. His friends will not respond to Elihu's speeches. And most importantly, God will not respond to Elihu's speeches. At the very beginning of chapter 38, when Elihu has fin- finished his last words, God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job. At the same time, God does not judge Elihu for anything that he's done. If you were to skip ahead to chapter 42, the very end of the story, and you see where God judges the three friends because they have not spoken rightly to Job about God, Elihu is not included in that judgment. And so you could say that uh, nobody paid attention to Elihu. He was just this, this, this kid who was speaking who had no right, and so no one was even going to give him the dignity of responding to his foolish talk. Or we could say, as many do, he has spoken rightly of God. He is prophetic. And, and even some would go as far to say that he is just short of a, of a theophany, of, a, of, a, of an appearance of, of, of God uh, in human flesh. And I wouldn't go that far uh, to say that. But some seem to, to, to be pushing that, that line a little bit. The last thing I want you to see about Elihu, and it's important as we go forward, is that Elihu is a man just like anybody else. Just like Eliphaz, just like Job, just like Bildad and Zephar. And so therefore, because he's a man, he is capable of saying the wrong things. And just because it's been penned down in Scripture does not mean that everything someone says recorded in Scripture is truth, as we've already seen with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zephar. And so we must discerningly read Elihu's speeches. We must consider what is being said and not simply take his word for it. It is very possible that he will say some things wrong in a very compelling way. It's very possible that he will say the right things but in the wrong way as well. And so we want to be careful of that. So as we jump into the beginning of his speeches, it's, it's, it's helpful to see how they connect to what just happened. We are left, as one said, we are left at the end of chapter 31 with this apparent capriciousness of God, this unpredictability of God, as Job has been the speaker for the last several chapters, and Job is convinced it's himself and tried to convince his friends that it just seems that God does all of these things at random, that God is very arbitrary in how He dishes out suffering and blessing. And that God rules the affairs of men, and, and no doubt He does so wisely. Job de- definitely believes that. But why the righteous are suffering, Job is still questioning, and no one has been able to answer him. And here, Elihu steps up to provide a different perspective, a really a third perspective, to two different important themes that uh, have been talked about thus far, and Elihu will pick up. First of all, Elihu provides a unique perspective on suffering, namely Job's suffering. In the three friends' minds, the suffering came as a punishment for Job's sin. And in Job's mind, the second perspective, he's basically convinced himself that suffering is random. It's just the luck of the draw. It's a, it, you spin the wheel, and if it lands on your number, then you suffer. And Elihu is here to say a third option, that maybe suffering comes for a different reason. Maybe suffering comes because of discipline. Maybe suffering comes to teach us. Maybe it comes to refine or sanctify God's people. Maybe even to prevent us from future sins. And in a very small nutshell, Elihu will suppose that 
We simply cannot know why God does what He does. But we can be certain that what He does is right and just. And God is right in doing what He does. Secondly, Elihu provides a unique perspective on sin. The friends have had this past focus. If we were to ask the, uh, ask the, uh, the question to summarize all of the friends' speeches, they would have been asking the question, Job, what have you done? What is this sin that you have done that has brought this suffering on you? Because they believed that the suffering Job experienced was due to some great sin that he had done in his past history. And of course, Job has responded uh, very strongly all throughout, I've done nothing wrong. So even Job is focused on the past. Well, here, Elihu is providing a perspective on the present. Instead of asking Job, what have you done? Elihu is asking Job, Job, what are you doing now? Because Elihu is not concerned with past sin. Elihu is concerned with present sin. Elihu is not concerned that Job is suffering because he has sinned. He is concerned that that Job is sinning because he is suffering. He's looking at the present time of suffering and is, and is trying to, want to, to get Job to consider, have you sinned in your suffering? Because in his suffering, Job has said some very wrong things about God. In maintaining his innocence, he has gone to a point where he begins to make God look wrong for doing what he has done in Job's life. Real quickly, we'll just kind of notice the structure of these speeches because I think it will be helpful for us as we work through them to see how they've been built uh, and and how the narrator presents them to us. We have four speeches here, and they're not uh, one chapter each because we have six chapters, so some of them are actually two chapters. And we notice that because at the beginning of some of the chapters it says, and Elihu answered, or and Elihu continued his speech, or something to that nature. So it wasn't just one very long, uh, wordy thing, but there were some definite pauses, and so we consider them four separate speeches. And as it begins, we have some narration, and that's very important. We'll, we'll see that in just a moment, how vital the narration is to this. And then Elihu begins to speak with an introduction of who he is and why he is speaking and why he hasn't spoken so far. And then he brings rebukes, and then he brings a defense of God's justice. That's the whole four speeches together. Now, each of the first three speeches are very similar to one another. Elihu will bring up statements that Job has said. And, what, and then he will rebuke Job because the things that he will bring up are wrong things that Job has said. And so we'll see statements. He'll say, you said this, and then here's what's wrong with that statement. And all four of these statements, or speeches, will work together to convey one message. He'll take six chapters to, do, to give that message to us, but it's this. Job's suffering is not punishment from God. Rather, God has brought suffering into Job's life for a very different reason. That seems like a lot, a lot of words to say that simple, we don't know why you're suffering, Job. But let's look at that very carefully and see how he brings that out. Again, maybe it's to teach him, uh, to prevent him from some committing some future sin. Maybe it's to teach him some lesson. Uh, Job cannot know why, but he cannot expect to know why either. That's what, that's what Elihu wants Job to see. You won't know why, and you cannot make God explain himself to you. And he will say that, Job, you have sinned in the way that you have responded to this trial. 
So let's look at chapter 32 and look at this narration because we may not be sure of Elihu and his thoughts and his statements, but we can be sure of the narrator. Remember that someone is writing this book as a story and they're not telling us absolutely every word that was said by Job and his friends. Not every word that was, uh, or every action is, is portrayed. There are some things that have been left out because the storyteller wants us to get from here to here and wants us to understand some things. And so that's why Elihu has not been introduced to us so far. But now it's time for us to hear from Elihu. And he tells us some very specific things. He has interrupted the story to, to tell us some things before we go further to uh, help to uh, direct and guide our thoughts as we read and understand Elihu's motives. What do we know already? Let's look at verse number 1 of chapter 32, and we'll see four things that we need to know for sure as we go forward. Verse 1 says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Four things that that the narrator wants us to know right off the top. First of all, the friends have stopped speaking to Job because he is righteous in his own eyes. Try as they may, they cannot convince Job that he has done anything wrong. And Job has maintained his innocence. Secondly, Elihu is very upset. This is second and third. He burns with anger. And notice how many times it said this. He burns with anger. He's not just a little bit upset. He's very upset. He's hot. He's fuming. And he's fuming at Job because Job has justified himself instead of God. Job is right to claim that he is innocent. But he is wrong to suggest that God is wrong for making him suffer. Job has crossed the line. Elihu is also upset, burning with anger at the friends because though they have condemned Job, they have not convicted him of any sin. Fourthly, Elihu had been quiet up to this point because of his youth. And and it's clear to, to, to point that out. And so out of deference to older men and in a culture where youth does not speak, you let the, 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 the aged speak, uh, Elihu is, must be considerably younger than these men, and he will not speak uh, because he will let these guys take care of it. So let's, let's jump into the speeches, and uh, let's start off with the first speech in verse number 6. I will tell you that uh, speech number 1 goes from chapter 32 all the way through chapter 33, but the real part of the speech doesn't happen until halfway through chapter 33. I told you Elihu is wordy. And for all of the rest of chapter 32, going into chapter 33, the thing that Elihu wants to say is, I need to say something. He'll say that over and over and over again in many, many different ways. I can't be quiet anymore. I need to speak up. Let's read a few of those verses and get the, get the, the sense of it. Verse number 6, And Elihu the, spirit, the son of Barachal the Buzite answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. He's saying here, guys, I've listened to you this whole time, and you have not successfully answered Job 
and Job, I've listened to what you've said, and you've not said right things either, and, and, and I was content to let the old men speak, but I have realized that age does not guarantee wisdom. Because wisdom comes from God, and God can give wisdom to whomever He chooses, even to a young man such as myself. Therefore, since none of you have refuted Job, I must take up the task. And what Elihu will have to say in these next few chapters, his words are not meant to wash over Job as the friend's words have. Rather, it is his intention to get under Job's skin, to irritate him, to not soften the blow, but to really just get right in his face and ruffle Job's feathers in order to change his heart and to convict him of his sin. And so he begins, as I said, with statements that Job has said. And we see the first one in verse number 9 of chapter 33. He says, uh, we're jumping all the way down because I said uh, most of the rest of 32, he just keeps saying, i got to talk. And so in verse number 9 of chapter 33, he'll say, You say, I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and he watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. He's saying, Job, you keep saying that you're innocent. You claim that you're innocent, that you've done nothing wrong, and yet God finds occasions against you. That God is kind of inventing charges. He's trumping charges uh, so that He can uh, prosecute you even though you say you've done nothing wrong. And that God has somehow treated you as an enemy and as a, as a prisoner of war that he's, he's captured you and He's put you in stocks and He's guarding you as a prisoner and, and you're innocent of this whole thing and that you're being unjustly uh, accused of things that you've never done. But Job, you're wrong. That's what he says there right off the bat in verse 12. And he says, I can't let this go. Because what the things that you said are wrong. And the reason I'm going to speak up is because God is greater than man. Job, you're not God's enemy. Job, God is not finding fault with you. He's not making stuff up in order to judge you. There's something else that you don't understand. Look at verse number 13. He gives the second statement. He says, Why do you contend against Him? Why do you quarrel with God? Saying, He will answer none of man's words. That's what a theme of the last few speeches of, of Job's was that God will not answer me. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. He says, Job, you, you, you argue with God. You quarrel. You're picking a fight with God because you keep saying God won't answer. God is hiding in the silence. And God will do these things, but He doesn't want to explain Himself. And He'll say, Job, no, God does speak. And so that's the, 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 the main idea of His first speech is that God is speaking. And He'll give two ways that God speaks. First of all, God speaks through revelation in verse number 14. It, through revelation such as dreams and visions of the night. In verse 15, a dream, a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So the first, thing, the first way that God speaks to men is by visions and dreams and He comes to them in the night and He terrifies them to warn them to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. He speaks then through revelation. Now, we don't speak to, God does not speak to us through the same kind of revelation, but if you'll think for a moment, a lot of the Scripture that we have was given to us through prophets that God spoke to in dreams that God spoke to in visions, and God spoke to what we call prophecies, but we can call it the revelation of God. Today, God speaks to us through His Word, the revelation of His Word. 
But secondly, and really where Elihu is getting at, is that God speaks to us also through our suffering. Verse number 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were, were not seen stick out. So God does other things to men, not just warning them in visions, but actually touching their bodies, touching their lives, and bringing pain and suffering into their lives in order to get their attention. C.S. Lewis once famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's similar to what Elihu is saying there, that God mercifully brings suffering into people's lives to deliver them from sin, to deliver them from destruction. Look at verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. God extends his mercy. God delivers from death all with the intention that man will turn and praise him and say, as he has said there, uh, I will, uh, as he'll get on later on, that I, I was delivered from a transgression. I didn't get what I deserved. And so the summary here of this first speech is Job, God wants to get your attention and He's doing it through your suffering. The second speech then begins in chapter 34. We see that verse number 1 kind of clearly breaks them uh, apart. And the, the second speech is all about the justice of God. Not only is God speaking, but secondly, God is just. And he begins this next speech by saying, listen guys, let's consider what Job has said and let's decide if what he is saying has any truth to it. And so the first statement he brings up is in verse number 5, chapter 34, verse 5. He'll say, Job has said, I'm in the right and God has taken away my right. In other words, God has denied me justice. I'm innocent and God has denied me justice. And, and he says, then Job, you claim here that, that God will not uh, bring justice to you, but in this, you're saying that God is unjust. When God is denying you justice, you're saying that God has somehow perverted justice in letting you suffer innocently. And in doing this, then, you mock God like a wicked man. In the second statement, he'll say in verse number 9, he'll say, for he, Job has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. In other words, why waste time trying to please God? What's the benefit of being God's friend? What's the benefit of God liking me if he just punishes people randomly? If it, there's no benefit to who you know in, in regards to if God knows you or not, then why, why worry about that? And Job, you're trying to defend yourself at the expense of God's justice. You would condemn God in order to prove your own innocence, in order to justify yourself. Now, we're, we are right to, to, to say that Job is, is right to declare his innocence. Job was innocent of major sin. We know because we have chapter 1. And we know that nothing that happened in Job's life was because of punishment for sin. But Job was not right to charge God with an injustice. We know that Job will later repent of some things that he has said of God. Chapter 42, he, he was, I repent, I, do, I, don't know, I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing, God. But see, Elihu wants, God, wants Job to see here that God is just. 
God is righteous in all He does. Look at verse 10 of chapter 34. He says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. For according to the work of man, He will repay him, and according to his ways, He will make it befall him. And he, and he goes on to talk about the justice of God. That by being God, He is transcendent. He is above all other people things. He is not like His creation, and because He is God, He can't sin. He's the highest thing. He'll go on to say, nobody put God in charge. He just is in charge because He is God. Nobody uh, checks in on God, and God never has to account uh, to anybody else. He doesn't need to investigate man's sin, His ways to determine if He's guilty or not. He just knows because God sees everything. And so then when God does something, it is just because God knows all things. And it's not that he has jumped the gun, he's not done his homework, and he went and he made a mistake in punishing someone wrongly because he didn't do enough careful inspection to find out if they deserved it or not. Whatever God does, he knows all things, therefore God is just, and you, Job, are wrong to say otherwise. God is not wrong to let you suffer. The third speech is in chapter 35. It's a short chapter, and so it's very, not a very long uh, speech, but he wants to say here, to build on what he has said. Thirdly, God is not obliged to you, Job. The statement he'll, he'll begin in verse number 2. He says, do you think this to be just? Chapter 35, verse 2. Do you think this to be just? Do you say, it's my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? It's similar to what he has just said in the previous speech. But now he's saying, what's the profit in not sinning? What good is it to be a good boy if God punishes you even though you're trying to be good? And he's saying there that when you say these types of things, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Because look at the heavens as he goes into verse number 5 and he says, look up at the heavens, look how high the heavens are. Nothing that you do down here changes who God is up there. You cannot affect the blessedness of God. And he'll say, you know what? What good is it to God if you're, if you're, a, good kid, if you're a good man? What good... How does it hurt God if you're bad? The righteousness of man does not affect God's blessedness. The wickedness of man does not affect God's blessedness. Now, he's not trying to say that God doesn't care what you do, but he is saying that it doesn't change who God is. Because if you're really good, you don't make God owe you. You don't gain leverage with God. Or negatively, if you're bad, then you gotta, you know, you're, you, got, you force God's hand on you. No, God, God is who God is, and we cannot affect that. And so when you ask, you know, God, why don't you answer me? He's saying you're asking the wrong question here. And then he goes into verse number 9 and he says, Job, don't expect an answer. That's really what he's been trying to get at here. Job, you can't ask questions like these because of the pride that's behind it. In verse number 9 through 16, he starts talking about people who cry out in their pain, but not in order to call on God to deliver them, but they call out in pride. And they're not saying, oh God, I trust you in this suffering and I trust you to care for me. They say, God, where are you? And they shake their fists at God. And he says, like the wicked people that do that, Job, who don't get their prayers answered, whom God does not hear, your prayer goes unanswered just as well. So in verses 9-16, through 16, he talks about how pride keeps people's prayers from being answered. And then in verse number 14, he's, he likens that to Job when he says in verse 14 to chapter 35, how much less when you say that you don't see him, that the case is before him and you're waiting for him, and now because his anger doesn't punish, 
He doesn't take much note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. God doesn't have to answer you, Job. And you're wrong if you think you deserve an answer from God. Because if you think that you deserve an answer from God, you'll never get to the point of why you're suffering. You'll never get to understand that. You miss the point of being good. You miss the point of not doing bad. You miss the point of suffering. You're not learning your lesson. Job, God doesn't owe you anything. And then his final speech, which covers the last two chapters, Job 36 and Job 37. And here, Elihu begins to try to ascribe glory and greatness to God in heaven. This speech is different in that he focuses mostly on God now. And he will call Job to repent, and he will call Job to to change his ways and, and to recant some of the things that he has said about God. And he'll say, if you look at verse number two, bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. He'll say several things about God. and For sake of time, we'll just skip. I'll I'll just kind of show you where they are so that you can go back and see them later. He'll say in verse number uh, five that God is wise. He's great in wisdom. Verse number 6, that God is just, that He he doesn't favor the wicked and He doesn't forsake the righteous. Then in verses 8-22, through He talks about the merciful teaching of God, that God is a merciful teacher, declares men their sin so that they will repent. He doesn't just judge them, but He he, he offers uh, a repentance. Uh, He offers space to repent, if you will. And he gets to this point, and this is so important that we we get to this and, and recognize it, that God uses affliction in the lives of people to get their attention and even to deliver them. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 36. Chapter 36, verse 8 says, And if they are bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve Him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasant. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And then He goes on to say, Now the godless people burn in their anger. They do not repent. And Job, that's where you're headed. Job, if you don't turn around now, your anger is going to pull you from God. Your your anger is going to cause you to sin. And He wants Job to see, as we get down, if you'll skip down to verse number 26, the last thing that he'll say about God that covers the rest of chapter 36 and all of chapter 37 is this, that God is great in His power. That God is so powerful, you cannot understand. You can't even imagine how powerful God is. That God can take such things as the lightning and the clouds and the rain and the thunder, and He can use them for whatever purpose He chooses. Sometimes he, ch- he does it to punish. Sometimes He does it to bless the land. Look at uh, chapter 36 and verse 26. He says, Behold, God is great and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. For He draws up the water, uh, the drops of water and they distill His mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of His pavilion? Behold, He scatters His lightning about Him and covers the roots of the sea. And then notice, for by these He judges peoples, that's judgment, He gives food in abundance. That's blessing. And it comes from the same thing. It comes from the water. It comes from the clouds. And so the same process can be used to, to judge the same, uh, as well as can be to bless. 
And this is how powerful God is. And this is how far beyond, how transcendent God is from our understanding that we don't recognize just how powerful God is and the purposes and the wisdom of God. If you'll skip over to chapter 37 and verse 23, we'll see that uh, explained uh, uh, in in a different way. And it's helpful for us to see it, he says. 37 and verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. That's what I meant to say. 37 and verse 13. He says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. And he's been talking about the rain and he's talking about the, 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 the goings on of God through the thunder. And, and it's very interesting how he, he gets this very poetically. And he says, and God could use this for the land to, to grow the crops. He could do this for correction. He could do this for, um, verse 13 says, uh, or for love. Mercifully letting these things come into your life so that you might repent. And he goes on to explain there that we cannot know what exactly God is doing. We can see what He's doing, but we don't know why He's doing it. And so he gets down to his finale finale of this speech and all of the speeches together. Verse number uh, 23. The Almighty. We cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. The summary here, God is so great, we just can't understand Him. You can see what He's doing, but you don't know why. And He is so powerful that He can take a tool and use it for multiple purposes. Just like He can use the rain to both bless the land and to bring punishment with a flood, God can use suffering in one person's life to bring punishment and judgment for their sin or to bring sanctification and healing and refining in another person's life. Job, stop insisting that you know everything. Listen to what God is saying to you through your suffering and fear Him. Stop expecting Him to answer you. Stop expecting Him to account to you because if God has to give an account to us, He is no longer God. We are. We are God's boss. And that's not how it works. So these are the speeches that that Elihu brings to Job. And it's, and it's interesting, I don't know how long of a pause we had between 37 and 38, but it says, then the Lord speaks. But for at least a moment, the silence pervades. And Job now has to sit and listen and consider, what has Elihu just said to me? Is there any grain of truth to what he has said? If Elihu's words were not convincing for us, the narrator's words are that Job had become righteous in his own eyes. We'll see, as I said, later on in chapter 42, Job will repent. God will come and right away rebuke Job for the things that he has said. He has said. We have to ask, Job has to ask the question, has God brought this suffering into my life in order to teach me something? He's convinced that it's not to punish him. We know from chapter 1 that it wasn't to punish him. We know that it was to prove that God is worthy of worship and praise and loyalty and devotion even without the gifts and the blessings that He gives. We can see that God transcends everyone and everything. He is so far above us that we cannot know Him. We cannot wrap our small mortal minds around the whole God who is. At the very least, Elihu here has reminded us that the greatest of men are still sinners. 
It's been said of Job that he shows us a man with a clear conscience, walking a life of obedient faith and love for God, walking in the light, as John put it. And yet when suffering comes, there are residues of sin within him that come to light. Job had these residues of sin, these things that when he was put to the pressure, when the heat was turned up in his life, though he was a good man, and though he's one that we would look at and say, what a, what a, what a hero, what a, what a role model in the Christian life, yet he is still a sinner. Yet he still had these residues of sin that would remind us that there is no one truly sinless or perfect save Christ. It, it points us to the one who is perfect, to the one who has no sin, to the one who became sin for us. We must never forget how much we need the righteousness of Christ, and not our own. Because as good and as shiny as we can make our own righteousness, when it's put to the test, there is still sin. By way of an application, just to put some couple questions into your mind as we close and leave and go throughout and begin another week. Let me ask, what has God been doing in your life? Has there been suffering? Some kind of test, some kind of trial, loss, pain, questions that go unanswered? What's God been doing in your life? And then let me ask, how are you responding to that trial? Hopefully you know that if you're in Christ, then there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and that the punishment has already been borne by another. And so the judgment that God has, has, has placed on your sin has already been paid for. And that the, the trial and the suffering in your life right now may not, is not because God is angry with you. It may be because He is refining you. It may be because He is chastening a son like a father. Are you letting the trial that you're going through make you bitter? Is it carrying you from God or is it making you cling closer to Him? Do we refuse the mercy? Do we refuse to heed the warnings? Do we refuse to yield to the teaching? Are we so consumed with demanding an answer from God as to why He has done this that we miss the lesson? Have you ever asked, what might God have for me in this trial? This thing I'm going through that hurts, that I don't like, that I would get rid of in a heartbeat if I could. Maybe God has something for me in this. What might God have for me? What do I need to learn in the school of suffering? Do we believe, and I, I hope that you don't believe these things, but maybe sometimes I think we unintentionally, subliminally begin to think, that our suffering are like random acts, like Job thought. If we follow that to its conclusion, then we believe that God is either powerless to stop them from happening, or He's uncaring and He doesn't really care what you're going through. The Scripture teaches us otherwise, that it has a purpose. We can know that all things work together for the good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God does speak to us. He teaches us through His Word. But I do think He teaches us through suffering. 
we must be convinced that God does what is right every time. That He does not owe us answers. And that everything He brings into our life is to sanctify us, to make us more to the image of Christ. We are His workmanship created unto good works. May we learn to say with the psalmist then, you are good and do good. And it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In our suffering, in our test, whatever it looks like, whatever it's called, may we learn to bow before our Creator, before our God, who is sovereign in our lives, who is just in all that He does, who is righteous and merciful, and may we yield to whatever sanctifying work He does in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You that we have a story like Job's to remind us that we are not in charge. Because when we enjoy so many blessings, and we have enjoyed so many blessings from You, when we get used to those blessings, and then they all of a sudden are gone or taken from us, get upset, we get angry, we're confused, we believe that we deserve them, we believe that life is supposed to get better for us as we follow you, as we, the happier we are because we know God is our Father, then you're going to make life a bed of roses for us. And yet we've seen Job, a servant like no one else of his time at least, who suffered like no one else, probably suffered more than any of us have ever known. We can see that Job wasn't a perfect man, though he tried to serve sincerely and closely as he could. He just did not. He didn't meet the mark. He failed, just as we do. But we can see that Job didn't understand why. It troubled him. He had friends that didn't help him. It kind of pushed him to justify himself rather than look at you. His eyes are on himself instead of you. Lord, in our own suffering, may we not make the same mistakes. May we not begin to think that we deserve better treatment than this. After all, we've done for you. After all, we've, we've not done. After all the sin we have put away in our, in our lives of all the righteousness and good works that we have tried to do and years and years of service certainly would get us to a place where bad things don't happen to us and yet certainly do. Forgive us for wanting to know answers that do not belong to us. Forgive us for trying to dethrone you, sit in the throne ourselves and demand that you be our servant and demand that you answer us for what you've done. Humble us in our suffering. Use it however you desire. Sanctify us, please. Remove those residues of sin, those stains that seem to just be set in our lives, the sin that clings so closely. 
if it be through joy or through suffering, we pray you would have your will done. We know that in the end you've promised us rest and peace and joy. But today, in this week, in this lifetime, there will be trials and there will be a cross to carry. Give us the grace that we need to gladly bear it and to follow after Christ, who lived in a in more perfect obedience than none of us ever will and yet suffered innocently on our behalf. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit that you give to us, that teaches us, that calls us to repentance, that mercifully draws us to you. Help us to see that our suffering is is mercy. There is mercy even in the, the trials of life. May we lift up our eyes and say, as the psalmist did, it was good we were afflicted because it caused us to learn something more about you. It caused us to. It removed sin. It removed pride. It removed anger. It brought us closer to the the cross. It brought glory to our Savior. It's not an easy task. It's not an easy request. We pray by your Spirit that it would be done. For just a moment where we sit. Just take a moment of meditation, responding to God as he has spoken to us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here, to be with each other. Help us to be, be attentive to those around us. Some have come this morning and sat through a service hurting, questioning, and suffering. There are those even that are not here this morning that are dealing with tragedies and, and heartbreaks, suffering in their lives. We pray that we might be good friends to them that we might offer truth and hope and help and love to them in the time that we've gathered. May we not leave these words and these truths in the pew as we leave, but take them with us and allow them to direct our lives this week as we go into the workplace, as we go interact with our families at home, wherever we may be. May we be testimonies of grace, even through our suffering. May we look to learn in every situation. We would be content with whatever it is that we find from your hand, whether it be favorable or not. May we give thanks and praise for you are good and you do good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask. Amen.